This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. The Stigma and Struggle of Depression, Bipolar Disease, and Generational Transference of Trauma are only beginning to receive the attention and care and understanding that are critical to supporting those suffering from its grip. Those brave enough to tell their stories paves the way and liberates others, teaching all of us that the armor of silence is not protective, but corrosive. Such a brave writer is our guest today, Luis Schwartz. He is a renowned Brazilian publisher, the largest in Brazil, an author, the recipient of the London Book Fair Lifetime Achievement Award, and beloved by the international world of publishers and writers. His new book, The Absent Moon, a memoir of a short childhood and a long depression, is an intimate, brave, tender, and inspiring telling about the tentacles of the Holocaust and a family and an only child burdened and scarred by its shadow. This beautiful narrative of a lonely child weighted down by guilt, responsibility, and undigested trauma cannot help but touch your heart. It profoundly and personally touched mine. Luis, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you very much, Roxanne. And... uh... I'm moved by by your words now, and uh, <laughs> I, I I try to be very humble. And so every time someone says uh, something like this, I I think, is it with me? So no. am I the right book for the <laughs> you, occasion? Yeah. You you are. Yeah. So you dedicate your book to your paternal grandfather, La La Laosh Laosh Laosh, who died in Bergen-Belsen, and. As the child of Holocaust survivors and the grandchild of Holocaust victims, I often feel obliged to resurrect the victims for their persona before the war, to give them a sense of who they were. So let's meet your grandfather. I know very little about my grandfather. My father really didn't like to speak. He told me his story during the war and pre-war only when I was 17 years old Mm. uh, in a Shabbat uh, dinner after he saw a documentary about the Warsaw Ghetto. He was was from Hungary, but he was so moved by the the story of Warsaw. And then he told me my... Girlfriend at that time, that's my wife uh, till today. And I knew a little bit about my grandfather. I, I just know that he was a very observant Jew. He was a poor man. He held cults, clandestine cults during the wartime in his apartment. And which is a brave act. Yes, really. He was a, a very brave man. Also sending my father to jump from the train, asking my father to to jump from the train when there was a problem because he knew that he couldn't run. And my father at 19 was able to escape and save his life. And this changed the life of my father forever. So the guilt of not saving his father. There is a a very curious thing because my book is dedicated to my grandfather Mm -hmm. and and he is, of course, the main person I wanted to dedicate the book. But Laios Luis is my name too. Mm -hmm. So during a long time, I said to me and I said to my mother that asked me several times why I I was writing this book. And I said, I want to help other people Mm -hmm. because I am a bipolar that can live normally. 
But then when I finished the book, I said, I think I'm writing to myself. Also, I think I can possibly help, but I need it very much to write. So when I dedicate to lawyers, there is an ambiguity because I'm also dedicating to yourself, to me. Yeah. So when I think about your grandfather, you tell a story about when your father, like, went and did something he wasn't supposed to do, and he thought his father would punish him. Yeah, well... And that gave me some insight into him and to your dad. Yes, my father was a a very bad student, and I think my grandfather possibly beat him for that. At that time, was quite normal. Right. And he was very upset with my father. And also my father was a womanizer since he was young. And my grandfather saw him going to the barber shop to prepare for a, a tea dancing occasion. On Shabbos. On Shabbat, yeah. And uh, he saw and my father thought he would be much uh, rude with him, but he just said, go to a barber shop, uh, not in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the image that I have, it's only one portrait of Mm -hmm. a very serious, uh, well, it's difficult to judge someone for one portrait. Yeah, But there is this one portrait and the guilt of my father, always about not being a good son Yeah, before his father saved him. Yeah. And he didn't save his father. Well, Luis, when Bill Clegg, who's your agent and a friend, he and I were having a conversation about generational trauma. And I said that I had gotten very interested in it and I was going to begin to do more research about my grandparents who all perished in in the war. But the thing that was striking to me is my grandfather, also religious, also strict, also beat my father. And my father, like your father, dealt with guilt his whole life. That yeah. he didn't get back. And and my grandmother also died in Bergen-Belsen. So I was touched by the comparison. Now, our families did it in different ways. So I'm very interested in how your father dealt with it, which is very different from how my father dealt with that. And we'll get to that. But, Luis, I rarely uh, do this in an interview, but I thought it was grounding and important for me to read uh, the very first few pages of your book. And I'm going to read them for a few reasons. One is, I think it's one of the most exquisite first chapters I've ever read in a book and just powerful. Two is, I think it very much grounds your story and sets the um, tone uh, for the rest of the book. So I think I said a few reasons. That's just a couple. But so this is page one, chapter one of your book. The lift led us off at the top of the mountain, a spectacular vista a white universe, beams of sun casting light and shadow over each notch in the Alpine range. Everyone who arrives at that spot for the first time pauses for a few moments to take in the view. It is quite something to breathe in the pristine air, surrounded by snow on all sides, beneath our feet and atop the farthest mountains, In such a vast space, the sensation that one is within reach of the sky makes each breath more intense. Readying for the descent has always been a simple matter of taking a gulp of air to fill the lungs and letting a feeling of wholeness with the mountain come over me. But at that moment, 
for no reason I could understand. I felt nothing. In fact, I could hardly breathe. I bent over to tighten my boots to conceal from my instructor or myself the anxiety that had stopped my breath and frozen my face. I dragged the ritual out so I could catch my breath, trying to eliminate the knot that caused my throat to seize at that very moment I was expecting the opposite. It came as a shock to arrive at the peak that morning with my lungs seizing up and my breath short, an inexplicable dry knot in my throat, the total opposite of what I had spent months imagining. It was not the mountain alone that demanded my humility. My depression required much more. Startled by the effort required to fill my lungs with air, I wasn't thinking at the beginning of this episode of the day when I first felt symptoms of depression. Few of us who are carriers of this illness are able to recall the exact moment when we first noticed its signs. Surfacing at the moment we identify something between the throat and the lungs, an obstacle that blocks the airway, that makes the act of breathing difficult. In general, depression erases distant recollections. Its own memory is short, exacerbating recent suffering, dismissing nearly all traces of history. It was this that I felt there at the top of the slope, and I never wanted to feel it again. If I make an effort to recall when my condition first appeared, I am able to piece together some sort of narrative. I think back to my shortness of breath at the peak, and suddenly I see the sad green eyes of my father, who never set foot there. Even before the image of my father's green irises, the memory of my depression takes the form of a sound. The pulse of my depression is the sound of my father's feet banging against the bedpost in the room next door as he struggled to fall asleep. My dominant mental image of him, his eyes, green irises contrasting with his damp and reddened scleria, which fills his lower eyelid with water, the tears pooling, came later. First, there was the heavy sound that came through the walls. Bang, 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 bang. This thud, almost the opposite of those eyes, was insistent and without rhythm. I cannot remember exactly when I heard his agonizing drumming for the first time. But I know this was the moment when my depression first made its present felt. It was the first time I felt terror run through me. As I suspected that I would be unable to live up to my duties as an only child. It was the occasion when I realized, even at that tender age, that I would be unable to secure my father's happiness. And yet, I was entirely aware that doing so would always be the most important mission of my life, a mission in which I failed utterly. You know, as I read the book, and and it was easy with your writing to feel what you were going through, how did that man who was grappling with guilt, whose father had asked him to step off the transport to Bergen-Belsen when it was at some odd stop where, I mean, when I think about your father just even running away. I mean, that he could have been killed in two seconds. So he marries your mother, who's a refugee from Yugoslavia. And what were they like as your parents? What was going on in your house? How did your father cope with this in in terms of parenting you? Well, they were very good parents, but in a completely ambiguous way. Mm-hmm. They were terribly dependent on me. Mm. And they made that clear to you? Yes. Uh, my father said to me, 
you know I am your best friend and you are my best friend mm. since I was uh, very, very young. So it was not a choice. It was an obligation. And uh, difficult for me to understand. I think I was maybe four years old. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. Right? When they say that. Yeah. My mother at Uh, had me as a uh, kind of a confidant. And, uh, Which is a messy spot to be in. Yeah, so she told all the problems of my father, but that she didn't know where they came from. And uh, that she only knew that he left his father and his father died in Bergen-Benzel. And she also failed having more children. Yeah. And that was uh, something that my father wanted very much. So he gave me his father's name. So in my name, my name could be guilt also mm. because he gave me the name of the person that he failed to with. save. Yeah, to save. And they were not the most happy couple. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Your father liked to play cards a lot. Yes, and... yeah. He was typical Hungarian. There were moments uh, that he was uh, in uh, social life that he was a very happy man. Mm. He liked to sing uh, gypsy songs. You don't say gypsy anymore, but I'm yeah. sorry, at that time. Yeah, my father too. Yeah. And he liked opera and he danced very well. And he was a big uh, womanizer, very handsome. And my mother was different. She was more of a cultural person, reading books, loving art, and studying art. And so it could not uh, exist, um, or, or, <laughs> or it could, but uh, for me... It didn't. Yeah, such a different couple. So uh, during some time, I thought they were happy, but let's say not much later than with four years. I, uh, when I was five, they, they separate for one or two years. So I be began to understand this big gap between mm -hmm. them and also why they needed so much uh, from me. And uh, it was uh, kind of difficult for the rest of my life. Luis, one of the things I thought about reading your book is, so you learned so much later, right? You didn't learn about your father's experience leaving the transport until you were 17. You, you have uh, understandably a child's view of a marriage being good or bad or separate. And it made me think about this idea of sometimes parents keep secrets to protect themselves. Sometimes they keep secrets to protect their children. Do you think when you look back on it that if you had understood earlier, it would have changed how you viewed things, how you developed, how you thought about your responsibilities? I am absolutely sure about that because my father's silence was maybe the thing that marked my personality mo mostly. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that I didn't know about his past and that, that he spoke more with his eyes than with words made me accuse him to that. Sometimes, it's funny, I'm a publisher, mm -hmm. but sometimes I valued so much the literature that brings a lot of silence in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my favorite Brazilian uh, songs, uh, Samba, that says that uh, the composer is looking for, for a music uh, without words not to lose its sense, its real sense. Yeah. So I think that the thing that defined me mostly 
was my father's silence. Mm. And um, I think definitely I would be a different person if I would not have so many doubts about his past. And and I, I think he was not protecting me. I think he was protecting himself Self. from the guilt he felt. Mm. He couldn't speak. My mother was kind of the opposite. And she loved to speak about her father that had uh, some heroic moments during the war on deciding to escape from Zagreb to Sarajevo, from Sarajevo to Italy. And uh, so it was different. I I heard all the stories of my maternal grandfather and almost known about my paternal grandfather mm-hmm. too. It was made public in an article by a Hungarian uh, Jewish journalist. And my father received it and done it. It was the first time he, it was, I knew only about the clandestine synagogue, but all the things that happened during his escape from the train, I would know only when I was 17, as you said. I couldn't help reading the book. You're a, you know, as I said in the introduction, a renowned publisher. I mean, anyone I spoke to that I was reading your book or I was going to have the opportunity to interview you are, you know, effusive in their language. And yet you disclose in the book that almost no one knew the degree to which you were grappling with your depression. So you made a choice to keep it secret until now. And I'm I'm curious to know what motivated you to keep it secret and why now to be public with it. We'll start with that. Well, I don't know. I didn't know I was bipolar till quite late. Mm-hmm. I knew I had signs of depression when I was uh, 16. I went to the first uh, psychologist, not psychiatrist at that time. Then soccer was so important to me that I... And you were a goalkeeper. I was a goalkeeper and I was chosen as the goalkeeper. And a good goalkeeper. Yeah, I was good. I was good, yeah. (laughs) Not anymore. But anyway... Oh, well. Yeah. Till I was 40-something, I I played quite well. Till you were 40? Yeah, till I was 40. That's pretty good. Yeah. But anyway, I was chosen to play in my the school team. And that helped me against uh, bullying because I was such a good student. And to be a good student... In- and now you were cool. Yeah, so I was cool because people For the saw, first time. Yeah, people saw my photographs uh, doing this uh, uh, beautiful uh, defenses, we say in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I then had some crises later that were treated as uh, normal depression. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I lived my life, I was... Uh, kind of an entrepreneur, created my, my own publishing house. Yeah. yeah. And when I was uh, 43, then I I was not treated with uh, medication, just a little bit. Uh, like Prozac, right? Yeah, the first time? Yeah, the Prozac at the first time, but I had allergy and so I stopped. Until I was 41 or 42 when the big depression came. Mm-hmm. I was not treated with any kind of medication. And you were debilitated at that? No. At I, that, in, when you were 41? Yeah, well, yes. Till I was 42, 
I was, uh, I couldn't say I was uh, depressed. Mm -hmm. I knew my mood changed so much. I knew sometimes I shouted uh, that I could um, destroy a record player or or the wall, my room and the window or something like this. But I didn't know this was uh, a sign of uh, bi bipolarity. Now my doctors asked me some questions after my book. And she said, did you eat a lot when you were adolescent? Uh, and yeah. uh, I said, yes, I could eat two pizzas uh, alone. <laughs> did you sleep a lot? Yes. I could sleep like uh, 16 to 20 hours. So since then, you were already a bipolar. But the problem is that I, the first big crisis or really big crisis uh, was not diagnosed correctly as, bi as a bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And I took medication for regular depression. And this, Which is different medicine. Yeah, completely. And I took a very strong antidepressants and I need more mood stabilizers and very little of antidepressants are known. And this put me in a, a completely out of control. The depression was very big too, but the treatment was wrong. And then I harmed myself. I don't think I can consider this uh, suicide attempt. But because, it was cutting. Yeah, I was cutting myself as to show that I was maybe needing uh, hugely help. And uh, so that was more or less when I, I discovered that I was bipolar. It's only when I was 43 years old. So, Luis... From what I witness in my own family and from what I've read about, that a deep frustration, and you talk about it, you talk about your experiences with different psychiatrists and the sort of experimenting that went on with the medication. Are you struck? I mean, even the diagnosis of being bipolar is done by the absence of something else. It's not like they take a blood test and you say you're bipolar. And then it's not like once you get this diagnosis, coming up with the right cocktail of uh, medications is easy. How frustrating did you find it to be in the midst of that kind of lack of clarity. I mean, it seems to me such a huge issue in the mental health field. Yeah. Well, just uh, to answer a part that I didn't answer from your very good uh, question, I didn't think I should tell to my mm. colleagues. Uh, they, because? They, they, well, I told to, to three or four that were really absolutely close. I think Bill knew, not at the time, but after we had things that Bill happened. Clegg, your Bill Clegg, your agent. Yeah. Because things that happened with him, I was... Uh, he has his own yeah, interesting his own, story. Yeah. So I was uh, part of something that happened in his story. And then I, I told him, but I didn't want to, to tell a lot of people. But I have to say that I think they, they didn't realize that after many years being so silent in uh, book fairs or avoiding parties or things like that, I was a bit of a strange kind of publisher. And it was the way you managed it. But just for our listeners, yeah. as as you and I know, these yeah. book, the Frankfurt Book Fair, yeah. you know, as much social yeah. as it is yes. finding books. And you had a lot of notoriety early because yeah. you had your publishing company yeah, had big success with, uh, quickly. 30 years old I was when I created my, my own publishing house. But you were retreating even in Frankfurt. Yeah, yeah. So I went to Frankfurt before for three years uh, as a publisher of another house that I worked for nine years. But then uh, when I was 30, maybe when I was 33, people discovered 
Companhia das Letras. But now going to the second question, this lack of clarity is terrible. I offer myself uh, to participate in a research that is going on in uh, Colombia universities, uh, São Paulo University and other mm. parts to try to search for DNA tests of bipolarity. Because mm. so, there aren't any now. Yeah, no, there aren't. So they, they took my DNA and uh, some blood tests and made questions. I don't know. I, I very much hope that this will work because it's terrible. Mm. People can be treated wrongly and I could have killed myself if I was more out of control than I was and maybe less successful as a parent and mm -hmm. as a husband if I didn't have a, a good job or... I could have killed myself, you know. I, yeah. I almost did the, the something very bad to myself. The day before I harmed myself, I went to the Fight Club, this film, mm -hmm. who now I hear my granddaughter saying, what a great film. And I, I, <laughs> I don't think so for yeah. you. <laughs> and I, I don't tell her, but I left the film and because I thought I was part of the film and the actors were beating me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't uh, separate. Make a, separate, make a difference between film and my reality. I was under um, a terrible maniac uh, crisis. So anyway, it's, it's terrible that it takes so long sometimes to discover if you are bipolar, if you just have an anxiety crisis, if you are a depressed person and all the other things that they have clues now that exist or it's and in the past was just depressed. You were you are a depressed yeah. person. So you say in the book that psychiatrists understand trauma to be one of the most common causes of depression regardless of genetic predisposition. And now early research is being done about generational trauma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I both as grandchildren of Holocaust victims and children of Holocaust survivors are impacted in ways that I always think of it as sort of this amorphous thing that you can't quite get your arms around, right? So you've been shaped, whether you would have been depressed if you had a different father, you know, we'd be speculating, yeah. you know, till the cows come home. But it made me think about the these questions. What have you shared with your, I, I know from the book that your wife knows everything, but how have you talked to your children about this? And how have you talked to your grandchildren about what you have descriptions in the book of what it feels like to be manic or depressed that are some of the best descriptions I've ever read? And I don't know whether they've read the book, but I'm curious both about the particular answer to that question and the other is how do we stop the transference? How do we break the pattern mm -hmm. of passing it on to yet another generation? Yeah. Well, it's a, a very complex uh, question. I said that um, you could uh, have the transmission of depression or someone can get depression not only from the DNA, but after a big trauma. This is something that science... Has proven. Yeah, proved. And I was speculating uh, about my father because he was socially such a happy man. It's so many adventures uh, in the good sense in his life and not good for, for my mother. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, 
he was loved in the Hungarian club where mm -hmm. he played cards. He was uh, loved by the sim simplest people in the sauna that gave the sandals for him or the robe or because he treated everyone. There is an expression in Portuguese, gente boa, it means uh, a good guy. So he said, hello, good guy, hello, mm -hmm. happy fellow, or hello. Uh, so it, it was... Uh, his... Luis, it's so stunning to me, yeah. the comparisons between our fathers. I mean, I am just uh, like it's, I'm almost gasping because my father played cards. Yeah. I always said when my father died, if the toll collector knew his name, they would have sent a sympathy card because he was, yeah. he'd want to know how the sweeper in the supermarket was doing. Mm -hmm. he, he just cared about everybody. And he used my dad. I've realized this reading your book. My dad used the opposite tactic of your dad. He was not silent. We had a noisy house. Oh, okay. So that you still didn't talk about anything, yeah. but you use noise. Oh, okay. I don't know which is better, yeah. the silence or the noise. Yeah, as I had silence, <laughs> I prefer noise. I, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the no. noise was had its benefit. Yeah. But, you know, when I had this doubt, how could my father become such a depressed man? And I was talking to a neurologist that I published uh, very good book of his and uh, he said look big traumas create is not only dna maybe your father didn't get i think my grandmother was depressed uh, mm -hmm. because my aunt was yolanda was her name yolanda yeah, yeah. so i i know that my aunt clary was very depressed but my father and also about some people that told me how he behaved after the war as a kind of a leader of a, a big house where they lived that probably belonged to a fascist general. And he was working as an extra and bringing food to all the people and helping and things like that. So I said, oh my God, but I think that guilt was cooking. It's corrosive. Yeah, inside of, of him and the, the, this big trauma. So th that's why I, I learned. And after that, I think I, I inherited this. I could have inherited in my blood, but... Or the transference yeah, of trauma. Transferred. I wrote a small essay. It, we didn't find, I think, uh, a place to publish it here called My Father's Silence, mm. where I, I describe little gestures, the posture, the eyes. Mm. And so how I think you can get depression from incredibly small things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope one day... I will be able to publish this or I I will read in my launching in London or because... Uh, it's important. Yeah. And uh, so I think there are incredibly good books about that. I have to confess, having lived this, I am not a reader of books about Holocaust, a, a lot of books on depression. I, I read, of course, Andrew Solomon and, and others, but I avoid some, some subjects that I, mm -hmm. I, I think I, I lived so intensively that I cannot uh, read about. So, Luis, you have two children, Pedro and Julia. Yeah. How have they been impacted by your experience and how do you, what are your conversations with them about yeah. your illness? Uh, it was impossible to avoid them to see what was happening. Pedro was uh, quite young. I cut myself on a Sunday afternoon. I was taken to uh, not exactly a hospital, but a clinic, kind of a clinic or 
where I stayed only for a few hours. My parents were, were went there because Lily had to pick Pedro from a uh, house of a friend for him not to see. But I then openly talked with them and it was impossible. I cried all the time and I, I didn't go to work and... And for some weeks, my wife was not allowed to work. So she had to stay with me. Mm -hmm. Then when she was, I stayed alone at home with, with my dogs while, the, while they were, went to school. They reacted incredibly well as very good uh, children that they are. But sometimes it's very important for the depressed people to understand that your children and your wife have to live their lives. Mm. And depression takes all the space. It's all-encompassing. Yeah. As we say, it takes all the air out of the room. Yeah. How do you manage that? How do you make sure? Because you have needs. There are things that yeah. you wish were not happening. How do you create the space for them to have a life? Sometimes uh, I have to confess, and I feel very guilty about that, that I, I ask for them not to go out or to stay with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was, uh, I see this as very bad now, but at the moment... I didn't have the judgment. Choice. Yeah. Or the choice. Yeah. But then I think uh, Lily, my wife, who is an incredible woman, she showed me that I had to understand that. Mm. Because also... How brave of her. Yeah. She also has a, an incredible career. And uh, this career was beginning at that time. And... But... I have to confess, sometimes she had to have a meeting with uh, her students at home. And I was feeling bad if, if she took them to the door. Mm -hmm. So it was really a very bad depression that I had. Mm -hmm. And the first months were, were very difficult. And my daughter, Julia... Uh, needed some air, and Lily guided me to give this to give air. that to yeah, her. But but I owe on completely to her mm -hmm. because at that time I depression is, is terrible. It uh, makes you think that uh, you are the center of the world. I write in the book that with depression you don't have the past. And you don't have the future. You just have that moment. That minute. Yeah. And there is something that's not in, in the book that I was uh, trying to make a playlist for my book uh, asked by the marketing people from my publishing house. And I was reading some forums about uh, books about depression and bi bipolar. Uh, you, you have everything in the internet. So I found out that some one guy thought that the best music ever made about being bipolar was by a group that you would never imagine that it's called Fleetwood Mac yeah and <laughs> and the music is called the chain and there is one phrase that i think defines incredibly The moment that you are in a maniac uh, and really needing everything to you. And it's more or less like this. If you don't love me now, you will never love me again. Mm. And, yeah. and so praise to Fleetwood Mac, you know, for, uh, you know, maybe one of them <laughs> uh, had this terrible problem that I had, but... It's a disease of the present. It's a disease that is authoritarian. It's a disease that wants to kill everything. It's a dictatorship. Mm.
So, Luis, do you think you've broken at least the element of the cycle of the transference of trauma with your kids? Do you think if I if we had Pedro and Julia here, do you think they would say that you've broken the cycle? I hope you you will allow me to give a very short answer to that mm-hmm. because it's something very difficult for me to speak about. But the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it's would, hard. No, and it's not. It doesn't depend on you. Yeah, and no, I I don't think I was able. You know, one of the things that I think about. And I I think about your grit and your resilience and the way you've fought through this for yourself, even from the depths of, you know, because you could give up too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think gave you that kind of grit and resilience to to move through it? I think uh, love. Mm -hmm. From Mm, your family? Yeah, from my family. A good psychiatrist, a good psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. I went four days. And away. you thought that was critical. You thought the medicine alone, without the psychoanalysis, yeah. wouldn't have been as effective in contributing to your well-being. Yeah. If I can contribute to someone that is hearing this program and suffer of something similar... I would say medication, 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 Mm. and then psychoanalysis or therapy or not psychoanalysis, but behavioral therapy, which uh, works. And many experts think it's better for quick results for depression, but it wouldn't work. For me, mm-hmm. I'm too Jewish to <laughs> to do behavioral uh, therapy. Yeah, you need to understand. Yeah, and I need to go deep. And mm-hmm. so I can understand why some experts are against uh, psychoanalysis, but for yeah, me, it's it's out of favor. Yeah, it's uh, yes, it's for each one. There is one. It's uh, custom made, you know. Yeah, the therapy and sport. So sport was very good when I could do it uh, again. I did a very specific sport and it was incredibly good for me. Mm-hmm. But I left because I think it's uh, a bit dangerous. And I dislike very much the place to, to do it Where because it's, yeah. a, it's a sport for very rich people. So I did show jumping. So I went, yeah, I went every day to the club. I had two horses and I jump uh, almost every day and I train with the other horse. And so I had contact with nature, Hmm. with animals. I didn't have a lot enough, uh, a lot uh, in common Mm -hmm. with uh, the other colleagues uh, I went to competitions with uh, and my wife uh, was incredible because she went and had to talk to to the other wives and uh, but she went to support me she sounds like a hell of a woman Lily yeah she is yeah she's uh, the best so Louise one almost last question is and we think about this in my family too about you know, my parents were complicated for reasons not unlike your parents being complicated. And we didn't, I feel badly, we didn't get to talk about your maternal grandparents who sound like they yeah. were clearly yeah. influential in a light in your life. Do you, do you feel angry at your father? Did you, do you feel you forgive him? You understood that he did the best he could? Oh, I loved him so much mm-hmm. and uh, I feel a bit guilty now or after the, in the last uh, years because with, uh, in all the fights I took his side 
because he was so much fragile than my mother. Mm-hmm. But your mom's still alive. Yeah, my mom is still uh, alive, and I talk to her two or three times a day. Two or three times a day? Yeah. Mm, would you call my son and tell him that that's a good idea? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me his number. No. <laughs> <laughs> I will. So I have a, a beautiful relationship yeah, now it with, sounds my, with like my mother. You, yeah. But I really loved my father. He depended so much on me that he wanted me to solve his uh, marriage. He mm. wanted me to, to bring, make, make him happy. Yeah, make him happy. So sometimes That's he a was lot. really rude with me. And then when I got a little bit older, I, I, I got really upset when he wanted me to be by force his best friend. Mm-hmm. But of course I didn't say anything, but I, I got furious inside. But you're not well, angry I now. I am wearing his, his watch. watch. Yeah, I I brought to the launching of my book, and uh, I I I just uh, loved him uh, as much as a son can love a, a, a father, father, even knowing. Despite. Yeah, despite. Sorry. Uh, um, I am, I am, I have Hungarian roots and I have a Brazilian accent. So please apologize for my. Well, mistakes. I have all Hungarian roots. Yeah. I have, I have nothing but Hungarian roots. So, you know, there's so much that we have not covered in the book. It is, as I said in the introduction, it's just a beautiful narrative, Louise. And I think for. You know, our stories are so connected that even taking myself out of it, because I just, I could never imagine that I could find a book that would resonate to my family the way yours has. But I think for someone dealing with depression, someone who's has a family member, for those who just want to read a tender, beautifully executed story, you've, you've delivered all of that. And we've covered, you know, teeny tiny pieces of the whole book. And before um, I say my final thank yous, we started our conversation talking about your grandfather and your grandfather impacts the title of the book. So Mm, share with us the significance of the title, Absent Moon. Uh, uh, Okay. Yeah, my, my book was named in Portuguese, The Air That I Lack, because it's the beginning of the book mm-hmm. when I saw that depression was coming again in the most unexpected moment of my life with my grandchildren in the mountains. and But it was so difficult to translate this title that in, in Portuguese sounds... Beautiful. Lyrical. Yeah. And then my great uh, publisher, we were discussing the titles and he saw in the end of the book that I, I like, I don't say a lot about that I like the book, but there is one thing that I am not shy to say that I like the end of the book because in the end of the book, I speak about, I use my failed books, the books that I couldn't mm-hmm. finish to tell my own story and about my depression. So how they fit in what I was living. And I really wrote a half of a novel, maybe 200 pages of a novel that would be called The Absent Moon. It would be called The Absent Moon because I describe in uh, Budapest when the Arrow Cross militia was killing the Jews on the streets in the ni- during the night. And I invent that Lajos, my grandfather, a very religious man, created a prayer for the moon not to leave, to be there all the time. Mm. So the light of the moon would avoid that the Jews would be killed. So this, uh, when, hmm. when Scott picked 
this idea of uh, using uh, 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 the name of a book that didn't, didn't have, work. Yeah, didn't work. <laughs> to this book, oh my God, uh, he's a, a genius publisher. I just have to thank him and Bill and all the team for yeah for what they they made. So, Luis, what do you hope a reader will take away from this book? Well, you said one word that you were not the first to say that uh, it's tender or tenderness. I think I am not a great writer, but I write very sincerely mm -hmm. and with tenderness to human being or yeah. to other humans. So I hope this can touch people with with problems, without. I hear, I think I hear in the U.S., it's going to be quite different than, than in Brazil and in other countries, too. In my country, there is still a lot of prejudice against mm -hmm. depression. Maybe here, too. In oh, the, in, I, yeah. yeah. I think it's talked about more. Yeah, yeah. But I still think that there are some people who think, oh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. So there was a one of the first reactions I had was from a very poor person that read the book and wrote to me. I tried to convince my mother. She refused to read because mm. she doesn't believe in depression. And now I'm going to speak to my father. And then he wrote that his father also didn't want to read the book. Oh my. I hope that this will not happen. I hope that People will want to read about uh, about being Brazilian, a Jewish Brazilian, and also successful, yeah. renowned. Yeah, I by purpose I didn't speak about my success, and I was criticized by that from some friends, and it was absolutely by purpose. And when someone will read the book, there is a short story that I wrote right. and that speaks about You're a very successful man in a, in a, a cer ceremony when he was getting the prize of man of the year, something that happened similarly to me. But I will never be able to speak about my success. I hope to be able to speak about publishing. That yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, I'm trying. But Luis, I think it's that humility, you know, that, I think to talk about, I I agree with your decision. I think it's it's there, uh, you know, in the tiniest of ways to, but I think, I think because the book is filled with so much humility, it makes it accessible for every kind of person. Because if people thought you could only deal with your depression because you were successful, I mean, it's sort of a separate issue in the U.S. with the way the mental health system is done. So I think the humility is part and parcel of the of the sensibility of the book. Yeah, I hope so. Also, because I became so silent and uh, with a kind of uh, allergy to big parties in the book fairs. So I understand that many people in publishing thinks I am a snob and they might be surprised that I bet they will that uh, I have uh, worse problems than being snobbish yeah and you know the irony you have some beautiful paragraphs about the need for you to be silent mm -hmm. and I think it's ironic that the silence that your father used to protect himself, It's the silence that you use to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. It's a perfect end to our conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> Luis, thank you so much. We've been talking to Luis Schwartz, the author of The Absent Moon, a memoir of a short childhood and a long depression. Luis Safe journeys back to Brazil, and many thanks at the last minute for taking the time uh, to be in conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. 
JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.